We're going to look at verses 22 through 28 in chapter 1. We're calling this study Rider on the Storm. God had an address in the Old Testament. It was the glory of God, care of the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, Israel. God desired to dwell on earth in the midst of his people. We call this manifestation of God to his people his glory. Let's take a quick look at how God has manifested his glory. In the process of cutting a covenant with Abraham, animals were cut in two and the presence of God passed between the animal parts. God's glory was described there as a smoking oven and a flaming torch as he made himself uh, glorious to Abraham. Later, God's glory appeared to Moses in the famous burning bush of Exodus chapter 3. As Israel departed Egypt, God's glory led them in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. An even more awesome manifestation of the glory of God appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai. Moses gave this account. It's in Exodus chapter 19. It says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. After the covenant... between God and Israel had been completed, God revealed for the first time that he wanted to dwell in the midst of Israel. He commanded Israel to build a house for him. In Exodus 25, he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. It's interesting that he would have that perspective. Obviously, it was a place of worship, but he didn't say, make me a sanctuary and come and worship me, which is what they did. He said, I want you to build me a sanctuary because I want to dwell among you. Later, he revealed that he had brought Israel out of Egypt just for that purpose, Exodus 29. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Finally, when the tabernacle had been completed, God's glory filled it, and God dwelled in the midst of Israel. Exodus 40, beginning in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Eventually, God revealed the permanent place that he had chosen for his dwelling place on earth. It was Mount Moriah. David constructed an altar on this site, and later Solomon built the first temple there. When the temple was being dedicated, God's glory filled it as he had the tabernacle in the wilderness. God's glory dwelled in the midst of Israel throughout what's called the first temple era, Solomon's temple. After Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. As the Jews fell into sin, God warned them repeatedly that he would discipline them. He reminded them that their covenant had blessings and cursings. Blessings for obedience, but cursings or discipline for disobedience. As the Jews continued to sin, it finally came to the northern kingdom of Israel, discipline in the form of the Assyrian army, which took them away brutally captive. Would Judah to the south, the place of the temple and God's dwelling place, would they learn the lesson and repent? Well, no, they wouldn't. The major reason why was they had the temple and therefore they had the glory of God in their midst 
And they didn't believe that God would allow anything to happen to that special place. Nevertheless, God sent Babylon to discipline his wayward people. Babylon came three times, as I've been telling you. In the third siege, the temple was destroyed and the glory of God departed from Israel. Now, the opening half of Ezekiel takes place between the second and the third sieges of Jerusalem. Ezekiel was given a vision to prepare the people for the departing from Jerusalem of the glory of God. And we need all this as background in order to put the remaining verses of chapter 1 into perspective. Ezekiel sees the heavens open and a storm approaching. In the storm, he sees four living creatures who he will later identify as cherubim. They are special beings, probably angels, that are associated with the presence of God and with his throne. And then there is a supernatural chariot. And now as the vision progresses, Ezekiel is going to see a firmament above the cherubim and the chariot. And so let's pick it up in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22. He says, The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. Now, in passing, I'll tell you that this word for firmament is the same word translated expanse in Genesis chapter 1, when the Bible describes the atmosphere that separated the waters below from the sky above. This firmament in Ezekiel's vision is going to serve as a sort of platform, we'll see, for the throne of God. Now, we saw that the glory of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Specifically, it dwelt above the mercy seat that served to cover the Ark of the Covenant. In 1 Samuel 4, 4, we read, So the people went to Shiloh, or sent to Shiloh, excuse me, that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And then 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bale, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Now, the mercy seat on the Ark, you know, there's the Ark of the Covenant is this box, and then on top of it is the mercy seat. It was distinguished by having cherubim carved on top of it with their wings touching. And as you think about this, you realize it was a physical representation on the earth of the reality that God was enthroned on the firmament in the heavens. And, and so what the Jews would see, or what the high priest would see at least, or what we all see as we see these replicas of uh, the Ark of the Covenant and its mercy seat with the cherubim, and, and what we don't see is that in that Holy of Holies, God's glory literally dwelt. He, he filled that building with His glory. And, and, and now Ezekiel is seeing the same thing, only the real thing. He's seeing these cherubim, these real cherubim coming in this storm and, and this chariot and this firmament and, and as we'll see in a minute, a throne and one seated upon the throne. And so that's what this vision is about. And, and that's why, again, I resist 
you know, uh, not just because it's, it's crazy and out there, but, you know, the people who say, well, no, this is a UFO. Ezekiel saw a UFO and the sound and the noise and the, you know, and all of this. One of these weeks, I've got a cool picture of, of what somebody thinks Ezekiel saw. It's, it's just flying saucer, basically. We're going to show that for you and, and all. And, and, and if you're a Jew, you think you people are crazier than I thought because this is, the, this is what we're all familiar with. This is what we've already had. And now we're seeing the reality. And so in verse 25, a voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne. In appearance like sapphire stone, on the likeness of the throne, there was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Again, a Jew would immediately associate these details with the Ark of the Covenant, with the mercy seat, and with the glory of God that dwelt in the Holy of Holies. After the storm passed, they would not see the glory of God as they had previously. This is what this vision is starting to mean to the Jews. There's a storm coming. On it, the glory of God is passing through. And, of course, we talked about the storm is the coming of the Babylonian kingdom. And this is a a pre-warning to them that, hey, the glory is about to depart. Remember, Ezekiel's prophesying before the final siege. The Jews are sure that God's not going to let anybody mess with his temple, with his presence. They knew the stories of how, you know, David tried to bring the ark back in the Old Testament and uh, Uzzah reached out to touch it when it was tottering on the cart and God struck him dead. Uh, There's all, all these other stories about the ark, how the... Uh, I think was it the Philistines who had it for a while and they put it in the temple of Dagon and every time they went in there Dagon's little statue was all sideways you know the Ark of the Covenant kept beating up Dagon and so they said hey get this thing out of here you know we don't want this thing and so the Jews they whether it was superstition or just the flesh or whatever they said there's they were saying to Jeremiah who was prophesying in Jerusalem he said Jeremiah the temple of the Lord I mean you're saying that the Babylonians are going to come Sure, we saw what the Assyrians did to Israel, but they deserved it. Uh, and, but look, we have the temple. We didn't leave Jerusalem. We didn't set up a, a worship in Samaria. But we have the temple. We have the presence of God. Nothing's going to happen to us. We're just in kind of a temporary decline, but it's no big deal. We love the Lord. It's a big lesson there for us is, you know, not to get lukewarm as Christians. Uh, it's a different reality, a different covenant. Uh, but, you know, it, uh, you don't want to be messing with the Lord in terms of getting lukewarm. It's not good for your walk. Now, it's in, interesting to me that it's about this time in history uh, that we're talking about where, uh, you know, Ezekiel's showing them in this vision that he receives from the Lord that the glory is going to depart. It's about this time in history that the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat actually disappear and they're not seen again. There are at least four answers to where the ark is one is that it is in heaven there are those who believe it's in heaven based on the fact that the ark or an ark is mentioned in the book of the revelation when we see god's throne in heaven it says the ark is there uh now could just be an ark that is a you know that the earthly ark was a representation but some people say no god actually took the ark to heaven to protect it Another answer is that it is buried somewhere under the old temple. We watch a lot of archaeological shows, and the best ones are always in the Holy Land. In fact, this is off subject, but Gino's got a great video that we just acquired about the digs at the Tell of Jericho. 
and how absolutely biblical what's happening in Jericho is. And, and we're going to announce it probably on Sunday and show it in two parts. It's a 30-minute video. We'll show it on a Wednesday night. It's just fascinating how archaeology is absolutely in line with what the Bible says about Jericho and how there's this one crazy archaeologist who says, well, you know, she bases her whole theory on something crazy. But it, it's interesting, just fantastic. And so uh, there are those who believe that, there, uh, that the ark is just hidden under that rubble and temple and, uh, you know, they've got these passages and there's places they won't let them dig and, you know, they're trying to figure out if that's maybe where the ark is. A third theory is that it was hidden somewhere by Jeremiah, probably in the Judean countryside around the time of the Babylonian conquest. Jeremiah knew what was going to happen. He knew what was going down. And there's a, a legend, I guess you'd call it, that he hid the ark so that it wouldn't be captured. And fourth, some believe that the ark is kept in a sanctuary in Ethiopia where it's being tended by a secluded line of Levitical priests. I've seen the building where they think it is. Uh, it's a nondescript building. Our building is much nicer. We could keep it here, you know, if they're looking for a better. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in Ethiopia is all I can say. And it, all of those things may be true. I, I don't know which is the, is the true one. No one does. What we know for sure is that the ark and the mercy seat were never seen again after the Babylonian captivity. In its place was a large stone slab onto which the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the Day of Atonement. When Pompey conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC, 63 BC, he looked into the Holy of Holies and he was amazed to find that it was empty. There's no mention of the glory of the Lord being present in the temple that was rebuilt by Zerubbabel after the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel was seeing the glory of God departing from the temple. The Jews did not believe anything like that could happen, but it was happening right in front of their very eyes. The glory of God did not return when Herod rebuilt the Jewish temple. That glory will not return when the Jews are allowed by the Antichrist to rebuild the temple, but it will return. It will return when Jesus returns to the earth in his second coming. The second half of Ezekiel's book will look forward to that return of the glory of the Lord when the Lord is back on the earth and his glory fills that millennial temple. And this is why I believe, along with most evangelical commentators, that the man Ezekiel sees in this vision is none other than Jesus Christ in his millennial glory. Verse 27, also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. So is the appearance of the brightness all around it. <clears throat> Excuse me. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. Ezekiel says this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. There are similarities and differences when you compare what Ezekiel saw to what John saw on Patmos, but both men saw the Lord in his glory. One author calls this the prelude to a mystery. He was referring to 1 Timothy 3.16 where you read, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, 
God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, would be manifested in the flesh. Ezekiel saw a likeness of that future manifestation. He saw the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his glory. Another interesting thought along the lines of this uh, would be that Jesus, uh, or another, or is found in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, which reads like this, And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these are all pictures of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord was departing Israel. It is still departed, but it will return. Our prophecy update this week, if you preview, is going to be about uh, the return to Israel of so many Jews uh, in our time. And uh, they, they had a ceremony where uh, Benjamin Netanyahu greeted this uh, aircraft that was bringing uh, Jewish immigrants. And for the first time in over, well, in about 2,000 years, there are almost more Jews in Israel than there are dispersed in the rest of the world. And it's an amazing thing. Because it, 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 the prophets agree that in the last days, Israel will be regathered into her land. But we'll see in Ezekiel later on, there are two gatherings. One is a regathering in unbelief. Uh, and that's what's happening now. And by unbelief, we mean they're not believers in Jesus Christ. The Jews are returning to the Holy Land, but it's not because they believe Jesus Christ is coming. Uh, it's, it's more of a, uh, a cultural thing. It's more of a religious thing. And when they build that temple, when the Antichrist, of course, they won't know he's the Antichrist. We would know if we were here, but we'll be gone. Uh, no one will know it's the Antichrist except Satan and the Antichrist uh, but, uh, and the false prophet. But uh, that, God's not going to fill that temple with his glory because there's no believers that are interested in that temple. Uh, and, and so uh, that glory departed. It's still departed, but it will return. Ezekiel's vision encompasses all of this prophetic truth. It preps the Jews for a long exile, but it gives them an even longer hope for the future. Ezekiel's reaction was to fall on his face. After the vision in chapter 2, Ezekiel is going to receive a call and a commission and an endowment with power uh, for the office to which God has called him, the office of the prophet. Now, this vision is for and about Israel, of course. We're not in it. But I think there are some important lessons to be learned from it. You see, God is in the vision, and we can understand some things about him and about how he deals with his people, uh, even though really the church and New Testament Christians are not really a part of this. I'd start by pointing out that God desires to be among his people. And I find that, for lack of a better word, sweet. God wants to be among his creatures. He had face-to-face fellowship with Adam and Eve. From the moment fellowship was lost in the Garden of Eden, God has been at work to restore it. Actually, the truth is, it was from eternity past, before Adam and Eve were ever created, that God already was at work and had a plan to restore what would be lost when Adam and Eve sinned. But from our point of view, God immediately began to work to restore fellowship. And there's a sense in which human history 
can be understood as God's plan to redeem the human race and restore what our original parents forfeited. And that's why by the end in the Revelation, you see things finally and fully restored. You really, you can't understand history unless you factor in the creation of Adam and Eve, the fall in the garden, and then everything else really is about bringing the promised Savior. God promised Adam and Eve that he literally said, I, you know, it, it, the seed of the promise was that he was going to come in human flesh. He was going to be born of a woman. And, and the story of the human race is preparing, as it were, that woman in the sense of, you know, working through a line, a godly line coming and finally saying, I'm going to go with Abraham here and start a new nation and then, you know, bring, uh, bring it all down to the descendants and all and have Jesus born. And, and all the other things that are going on, all these kingdoms of the world, God lets us know that He really understands them and is in control of them. And so we read Daniel and we read the Revelation and we see how that God raises up and puts down Egypt. And God raises up and puts down Assyria. God raises up and puts down Babylon and then the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. And, and, and people say, well, how come Great Britain? You know, they were a world ruling. How come they're not in the Bible? Where's the United States in Scripture? Uh, you know, uh, where's... Who cares? In one sense, you know, I, I mean, you know, God is working through these particular nations. We're talking about not the complete history of the world. God didn't set out to write a history of the world. He set out to write the story of redemption and it's set in the history of the world. And, and different people relate to it differently. But at the center of it is, is, is this people, this nation, the, the Jews, Israel, because God said, this is who the, my son will be born through. It will be the lineage of this tiny nation. I didn't pick them, he said, because they were great, but because they were little and, and, and weak. And, and, and they yet will be a light to the world. And so it's an amazing thing. That, that's what history is all about. You know, I remember studying history. Uh, I, actually, I wish that I had majored in history now. You know, I, I, I don't know what I was doing with psychology and philosophy. is crazy. But uh, history was always fascinating. And, uh, but, of course, back then, I, I, you know, I wasn't a Christian. And, and, and all the professors I had, the history professors, they all had theories about what history was all about. Uh, and, and really, this is what history is all about. It's about Jesus Christ and bringing him to a lost race so that we can be redeemed. And so uh, we see all of that here in Ezekiel's vision. There's no more temple in Revelation by the time you get there, as you recall, because the dwelling place of God is where it ought to be among those who are saved. And so God dwelt with Adam and Eve, said this is the way it can be. We're just, let's go garden. You know, it's the original Genesis farm. Uh, you know, as it were, for those of you who do Genesis farming and stuff, it's the original, it's the, it's the type and stuff. And, and then all that's happened in between all the 7,000 or so years of human history that are recorded in the Bible, it's all to get back, uh, as, you know, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash said, back to the garden. Uh, isn't it the anniversary of Woodstock or something like that? We've got to get back to the garden, you know, and stuff. I was going to do my falsetto, but I'll, I'll, I'll not. <clears throat> but uh, that's, and so God finally gets a revelation, and how does it end? You remember how it ended? God 
God's dwelling places with men. There's no need of the temple. There's no moon or sun. It's all, it's all just the Lord dwelling with man again. That's what's happening. If the ultimate goal, to use such a word, uh, it, it's, almost, it's a very poor word, but if the ultimate goal is the redemption of man and the restoration of fellowship, we ought to concern ourselves with those things to a certain extent now. If a person is not saved, there's nothing more important than the issue of where they will spend eternity. We who are saved ought to so live to represent Jesus to them. We are, after all, His temple on the earth. We ought to be revealing then how glorious is our Lord. Once saved, the primary thing is your relationship with the Lord. You should pursue anything and everything that helps your relationship with the Lord, and you should avoid anything and everything that hinders your relationship with the Lord. Now, a second lesson is something we've pointed out repeatedly in going through chapter 1. God is both in the storm and over the storm. For the Jews, the storm was Babylon and exile. What is your storm? What is my storm? Whatever it is, God will be in it with you and He is over it. And He's using it to mold you and to shape you and to make you into a man or a woman of God. You must believe He is present in the storm. And I think that's, that's the difficult thing is to know, to reckon the presence of God in the storm of your life. Uh, I've seen people... Uh, I'd be the first to admit that I have, haven't had too much severe happen to me. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm not really a hypochondriac, but I always think I have what everybody has. Somebody says, I have this. I said, what are your symptoms? <laughs> I felt that. Huh. You know, and stuff. <clears throat> and, and then Pam has to say, hey, you're, ne- you're never even sick. I mean, nothing bad's ever even happened to you. I'm trying to think of the worst thing that's ever happened to me, and I, I, I don't know even what it is. Uh, you you, you want to yell something? Do you know what the worst thing that's ever happened to me? No? No. You... Yeah, I broke my ankle one time. That's it. Yeah, there it is. That's the worst thing that ever happened. I broke my ankle at the church picnic. And uh, you don't know that? I'll tell you that story sometime. Uh, but anyway, that's like the worst thing. It's ever... And yet I'm around people. I mean, I mean, the storms that they're in are just enormous. Uh, I mean, wow. I mean, this is like, you know, to use the phrase that was coined, you know, the perfect storm. I mean, everything, everything bad is converging in your life at once. I mean, this is the worst thing I've ever heard of or seen. And, and it can be hard sometimes. For people at both ends, you know, whether it's just some small thing that's an inconvenience like a broken leg or whether it's this massive storm, it can be hard to reckon that God is with you in the storm, that he's the rider on the storm and that he's over it. Uh, you know, it gets very Jobian sometimes, you know, where, you know, God just kept whittling Job away until there was just him and God. There's no other person. They're, they're you know, not even friends, you know. His wife was some crazy lady, you know. Uh, his kids were all dead. He had no possessions. And his whole life was an ash heap and a potsherd and a boil, you know. And, and you ever had a boil? Anybody ever? I've never even had a boil. But uh, I hear that they're very painful, you know, and, and, and crazy painful and stuff, you know. And, and so, uh, you know, from, head, from the top of the crown of his head to the bottom of his feet, Job is like Mr. Boyle, you know, comes to town. And he just sits there scraping himself, you know. And, and, uh, and God says, yeah, you know, this is it. Is it. Am I enough for you? 
You think, wow, this is crazy spiritual stuff. But at the end, Job, he says, wow, you know, now I know. Now I know that he is God. I've been refined through the fire as gold. It's an amazing thing. You must believe he is present in the storm. Then there's this whole issue of glory. It's interesting that the temple that existed in the time of Jesus called Herod's temple, did not have the ark or the mercy seat and therefore did not have the glory of God, mostly because the glory of God was on the earth in the presence of, in the person rather, of Jesus Christ. Uh, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, John chapter 2. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The same glory seen in the temple is described by Peter of the transfiguration when Jesus is transformed. Mark reports that he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer's soap on earth can whiten them. Luke says the appearance of his face was altered and that his robe became white and glistening. Matthew states, and I quote, He was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Jesus being transfigured in the Greek is the word metamorpho, meaning a change of appearance. This isn't an inward change, but an outward one. What was once veiled is now revealed to those around him. They were able to see the inner glory of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, which was veiled by his flesh as he was this incarnate God-man. Now, here's something truly amazing. You and I are to reflect the glory of God. We're called to do it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This phrase, beholding as in a mirror, literally, literally means reflecting as a mirror does. Paul declares that you see God face to face in the person of Jesus. You all see him, every Christian. And as you do over the course of your life, you're being transformed by the indwelling spirit into the same image you see. So we say that you're becoming like Jesus. You're revealing his glory. Spend time with Jesus and over your lifetime, you will look and act more like him and along the way other people will see that glory one final thought there's still a sense in which God's glory can depart from us I'm not talking about forfeiting or losing our salvation not at all but Jesus when addressing the church at Ephesus told them if they did not return to their first love for him then he would remove their lampstand in Revelation the lampstand represents the church on earth And so remove your lampstand means that Jesus will no longer really be present powerfully in the midst of that church. We really don't want to be a loveless, lifeless, lightless church. And the antidote to that is to get alone with the Lord, fall on our faces in His presence, and see His glory, and then reflect it to others. Amen.